And I do want to thank uh, David and Brian and Carrie and uh, Fred for preaching these last several weeks. If you've been here in the last month and wonder, when are we going to see the preacher? Uh, I haven't been sick. I haven't been traveling. Part of our philosophy here at Dini Community Church is in a shared pulpit. And even though I'm primarily the preacher, we also have regularly qualified men in our church presenting God's Word to you because they are able to do so accurately and clearly and practically. And we do this for several reasons. One is to employ, enjoy, and to develop the preaching gifts in our midst because they don't reside in just one person. Uh, Secondly is to give me an opportunity to sit under the preaching of the Word, which I need. And thirdly, most importantly, we never want this pulpit or this church to be about one voice or one person. That sometimes there is an unhealthy identification of a church with a person. And so do you go to so-and-so's church? Do you go to his church? This is God's church. This is Christ's church. And the important thing isn't who's preaching, but that God's word is being preached. And so we do that for several reasons. And if you didn't understand it, that's why. Uh, A friend of mine, a couple years ago, his father was wanting to learn more about his family's history and heritage. So the son surprised him and subscribed him to one of those DNA genealogy testing services. So we got the vial, swabbed his dad's mouth, put it in the test tube, mailed it back, and the results came. Rather than giving it directly to his dad, he went to the website, copied the logo, and made a mock letterhead and a mock envelope, and then he wrote his own letter that the father opened and read before the family. So picture the father waiting to hear about his history, waiting to hear about the heritage, and he opens it up, and this is what he reads. Dear Sir, Our scientists and researchers were very alarmed by your DNA sample. It seems that at some point the Mongol horde invited your ancestors' tiny village in Eastern Europe, leaving behind soldiers to colonize the area. In response, local warlords rose up to repel the invading Mongols, and the warlords and Mongols intermarried and had children. You were the product of one of these marriages. Indeed, according to the History Department of Cambridge, You were one of the only remaining descendants of both Genghis Khan and Vlad the Impaler. As a result, you may have a strong predisposition to both violence and larceny. In addition, you may feel a strong desire to set fire to villages with thatched roof cottages. Please refrain from doing so as this may awaken long repressed urges to pillage. We also warn you to avoid ingesting rare meat as this may stir up desires that you may find both disturbing and upsetting. Sincerely, (laughs) Ancestry.com. So this was complete with maps and charts and graphs. And you can imagine the dad, maybe a little bit of alarm, a little bit of surprise, a little bit of suspicion, and then just open amusement at that brilliant practical joke. But there have been actual instances of people getting DNA test results back and being disillusioned as to their identities. So last year, there was a Twitter feed about a family that assumed that they were Italian. They ate Italian, they spoke Italian with Italian accents, they identified with Italian festivals, and then they sent off the test, and it turns out they were Swiss. And it completely shattered their image. And so the one on Twitter, the niece was saying, I think I'm going to have to swap out the Godfather DVDs for Swiss Family Robinson, and I'm gonna be giving Swiss chocolate for Christmas. And the point of all this is that how we view ourselves largely influences how we behave ourselves. Our view of our identity largely impacts the way that we live our lives. And that is the point of Paul's text in Colossians chapter 3. 
Last week, David showed us from Colossians 3, 1 through 4, that we who are identified with Christ have indeed been identified with his death and resurrection, and therefore we are to set our minds on things above because we are citizens of heaven. And we are not to be fixated on earthly, worldly things because we're not denizens of this earth. We have a higher identity. And now in verses 5 through 11, Paul is going to make the same point a different way by calling upon us to no longer live as we used to be. That that old BC identity that was engaged in immorality and hate and deceit, that's not who we are anymore. And so he reminds us who we are in Christ to exhort us to live according to who we are, not who we were. And we're going to see in these verses three main points. That we who are in Christ must put to death sinful deeds and desires. That we must lay aside hateful thoughts and harmful words. And that we must live honestly as new, renewed persons in Jesus Christ. First, therefore consider the members of your body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So the word therefore links verses 5 through 11 with 1 through 4. And it exhorts us again that because you have died with Christ, because you have been raised with Christ, because you are now seated with Christ at the right hand of the throne of God, because this is who you are, live accordingly. Therefore, because of this, and if you have the New American Standard, which is what I preach from, the word consider is used, but that's not the word in the Greek. The actual Greek word is necrosite, which is related to necrosis. So if you ever had frostbite and you see the blackened fingertips or toe tips, that tells you that the tissue has died or those who have struggled with diabetes. So the word for tissue death is the word for death, and it's the word here for put to death. Because Paul is telling us to put something to death. The Greek word is, gives us, an, or the word translated in the King James is mortify, from which we get the theological term mortification, the mortification of sin. And the saint who has written most biblically, profoundly, and helpfully on this subject was an English Puritan named John Owen, and he defined the mortification of sin as involving three things. First of all, the habitual weakening of sin that is accomplished by constantly struggling against sin, resulting in regular victory over sin. Let me repeat that. What Paul is calling us to do in putting to death the deeds of the body is to be constantly struggling against sin that will result in the habitual weakening of sin that will accomplish our regular victory over sin, which is what is expected of all Christians. Now, we will not be sinless on this earth. While we are exposed to deceitful devils and a fallen world and fallen flesh, we will continue to fall into sin periodically. But as we walk with Christ and as the Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ, as we become more and more obedient in Christ, then we should sin less and less. And the desire for sin should diminish. So Paul is exhorting us to put to death, to cease from sunshine, to no longer give in to, specifically, the members of our earthly body, which means the parts of the body and the aspects of our soul by which we engage the world around us. The eyes that we choose to view things, the ears that we choose to hear things, 
the hands that we choose to do things, the affections that we give to long for things, the feet that take us to different places, everything that we can use and act upon, every element of ourselves, we are to no longer yield to sin. This is how Paul described it in Romans 6. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That all these things that God gave us in our bodies, in our minds, in our souls that we used for sin, now we're to dedicate to God. So Ignatius of Loyola was a Spanish soldier who was involved in battle. A cannonball shattered his leg while he was convalescing. He gave his life to Christ. And then afterwards, he knelt at an altar and laid his mercenary sword up on the altar and dedicated himself to be a soldier for Christ and later became the founder of the Jesuit order. And what he was saying is this blade that used to be used for mercenary purposes, this blade that be used to be used for earthly purposes, I now lay at the altar and all the skill and all the discipline that I have as a soldier is now going to be dedicated to Jesus Christ. And that's what's intended in this. Jesus said something similarly, similarly in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. And Jesus isn't preaching self-mutilation, but what he's telling us is no longer use your body elements for sin because we're going to be accountable to those someday. And what we do with our eyes, what we do with our hands, what we do with our hearts, what we do with our tongues, all of that matters. And it matters eternally. And therefore, it is worthwhile, if it would resolve the issue, and plucking out an eye wouldn't resolve the lust issue, but it would be worth it if it could for you to be spared the judgment of God. Use your instruments, use your bodies, use your capacities for God and not for sin. And Paul mentions five specific areas that we must not yield to sin. The first is immorality, by which he means sexual immorality, which the Bible defines as any sexual activity or sexual arousal, intentional sexual arousal outside the confines of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman. That's how the Bible defines sexual immorality. Sex is a very good thing that God gave to be enjoyed between a man and a woman within the confines of committed marriage. What that means is any premarital sex, any extramarital, extramarital infidelity, any polygamy, any homosexuality, any pornographic viewing or reading or listening or lusting, anything that is outside the enjoyment of sexual relations between a husband and a wife within the confines of a biblical marriage is prohibited to Christians. And we are not to give our eyes, our minds, our ears, our lust, any part of ourselves to yield to that. It's a good thing within a good context and it is prohibited without, outside of that context. Secondly, impurity. Literally anything that is filthy, that is dirty, that is foul, that is corrupted. And that could be our language. That could be the things that we listen to. That could be the movies that we watch, the websites that we visit, the songs that we sing, the words that we use, the jokes that we tell. Anything that is foul-mouthed, that is polluted, that is filthy, that is dirty, we're to be clean of because that's no longer who we are in Christ. Passion, 
by which he means the overwhelming urges and inclinations to do wicked, evil deeds. The itchings and the cravings that can consume and just fill our minds until you are preoccupied to the point of yielding to that addiction or scratching that itch, indulging that lust. All of those things we are to give up along with the evil desires, any unrighteous longing, any desire for something that is displeasing to God. And finally, to greed, which doesn't just amount to idolatry. The actual Greek word is greed, which is idolatry. Because for many, money is their God. It is the highest thing in their life. It is the thing they revere the most. It is what they live their lives for. It is what they're banking their security on. It is what they are making sacrifices to, including of their marriages and their children. And it can be idolatry. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now you can serve God with your wealth. We are all called to labor and to provide for our families and to honor God with the first fruits of our wealth, but we can't live for money and for God. Those are two gods, and we must choose the one true God. And a couple of things that Paul talks about in here is that these are not just external acts, but internal thoughts and desires as well. So I remember someone lusting after a particular woman, actually leering at her, and he said, I can look, I just can't touch. And that's a lie. Lustful looks are adultery of the heart. Covetous desires are theft of the heart. Hateful thoughts, vengeful, bitterness thoughts are murder of the heart. And God sees, not as the man sees, God looks at who we are in our heart. And it's not merely our deeds, but the desires and the emotions and the passions as well that have to be addressed in this. And he gives us two reasons why we can no longer work in this. First of all, is they provoke God's wrath. It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Those who are characterized by high-handed, defiant, persistent disobedience to God. God judges those. God is provoked by those. God is righteous and he judges unrighteousness. God is holy and he is provoked by unholiness. And therefore, we cannot indulge in these things because God is a God who judges wicked thoughts and deeds. That one sin of Adam resulted in the victim of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and put the whole world in corruption and condemnation. That when the world fell into wickedness, God sent a flood to destroy the world. That when Sodom and Gomorrah fell into high-handed wickedness, God destroyed those cities with fire. Sin brings death. Sin shreds life. Unrighteousness will be judged. And even those of us who are in Jesus Christ that have had our Lord bear the wrath of God for us on the cross, God is a good Father who disciplines His children. And God will discipline us if we choose to walk in sin against Him. Just ask David. Uh, and not just in the consequences on our body, in our relationships. To me, one of the most scary things about sin is a concept called opportunity cost. So if any of y'all were business majors or economic majors, you learned about opportunity cost. That if you spend a resource on something, the expense of that, the cost of that, wasn't merely what you purchased, it's what you gave up to purchase it. So if you choose to go a family vacation to the Caribbean, you lose the opportunity to go to Canada. If you buy the, the Camry, you don't buy the Corolla. And there's an opportunity cost. Well, there is an opportunity cost to sin, the Bible says. 
And when Nathan came to David after his adultery and he said, I called you as the least of your brothers and I made you king and I gave you victory over your enemies and I appointed you over my people. And if this had been too little, I would have done much more, but you sinned. That gives me chills just to say it. I did all these things for you. I intended all these things for you, but because you chose to sin, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to use you in that way. And none of us know the cost of our sin, the opportunity cost of our sin. And so we are to be sober and not to sin. And secondly, because that's not who we are anymore. He says, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So in our BC days, we used to indulge in immorality and impurity and in coarseness and in greed and in passions and evil desires. But that's not who we are anymore. That's our old selves. That's our old BC days. But now we're walking in our AD lives. And the first volume of our biography has been written and closed. And when we come to Christ, a new volume opens. And now we have our new life in Christ. And when we're tempted to do those old things, we have to say, that's not who I am anymore. That's not me anymore. So Spencer, you mentioned that yesterday was his birthday. It was also Carrie Hole's birthday. And it was also Augustine's birthday. And Augustine is the most influential writer and thinker of the Christian tradition. And when he was 17 years old, he went to the city of Carthage to study. And he said that he descended into a seething cauldron of lusts. And as a 17-year-old pagan boy, he indulged. And by 18, he had an illegitimate son. And he continued to enjoy, indulge in sexual immorality while he pursued his career until the age of 32. And he said up until that point, as he began to really believe in a God, and he would say sometimes, God, save me, save me, but not yet, because he wasn't done sinning yet. And he knew that if God saved him, he wouldn't be able to indulge in those things. And then as he was sitting in a garden one night, he opened up his Bibles to Romans 13, 14. But you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust the exact same that was, thing that was keeping him from Christ. And so he knelt down in that garden and he gave his life to God. And when he rose, he rose to walk in newness of life. And he gave up his worldly career and he took a vow of chastity and he took precautions to make sure that he would never be susceptible to that sin again. And he would not live or even be alone in the presence of a female because that had been the areas that he'd fallen in before. And he walked in a new life because he had a new identity. And that's true for every one of us. When we become a Christian, something dies, someone dies, and a new person comes up from those baptismal waters to walk in newness of life. So during a wedding, when the groom and the bride come to the, or the groom and the bride come to the front and they say their vows, their old single identity dies. And now they can no longer live like a single person because they're not single anymore. And when they're tempted to go out and to do whatever they did and may have enjoyed and indulged in when they were single, now they have to remember, but that's not who I am anymore. When a soldier, we just celebrated Veterans Day this Thursday. When a soldier enlists, his civilian self dies and he can't act like he used to before. And it used to be when he was a civilian, he could go out wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. But now if you do that when you're on duty, you get something called AWOL because you are away without leave and there are penalties for that. You don't get to live as a civilian once you've taken on a new identity as a soldier. 
And we as Christians have a new identity in Christ and we are to live according to the new, not according to the old. Next, we are to lay aside the hateful thoughts and the harmful words that used to characterize us before Christ. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. But now means, now that we're Christians, now that we are identified with Christ, we are to put aside, and it's a word used of clothing. So when the people came to stone Stephen and Paul was there among them, they laid aside their garments. That's the concept, that there is a laying aside of something once we come to Christ. It's a common image in the Bible. Romans 13, 12 says, Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, the author of Hebrews says, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Ephesians 4, 25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each other. James, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. 1 Peter, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander, like a dirty, filthy garment that's gotten soiled and spoiled, lay it aside because God has something better for you to put on. And this imagery actually was depicted in the early church when they would do baptisms. So in the early centuries of the church, they would baptize on Easter Sunday. Forty days prior, you would begin a period of instruction, catechesis, and that's where we get the tradition of Lent. And then you would have an all-night vigil during the night of Easter. And as dawn was nearing, the baptismal candidates would come, and the first thing they would do as they came to the waters is they would face west, and they would renounce Satan, because that's who they used to belong to. And then they would take off their garments, and they would represent symbolically the fact that they were laying aside their old man, their old person with all of its sins and all of its hate and all of its immorality and all of its impurity. They laid it aside. And then they went down nude into the baptismal waters, which is why you had bishops doing the baptisms for the men and deaconesses for the women. And as they came up out of the waters, having professed their belief and allegiance to Jesus and then anointed with an oil to represent the Holy Spirit coming upon them and indwelling them, as they stepped out of the waters, they were given a, a white robe to wear. Because their sins, though as scarlet, had become white as snow. And they had become a new creation in Christ. The caterpillar had crawled into the cocoon and emerged a butterfly. And that's what happens to us in Christ. And we are to lay those things aside. Specifically, he gives another five. These times having less to do with morality personally than interpersonal relations. Anger, which is a state of strong displeasure against another. And that can strengthen to wrath. And now the cauldron has boiled over. The volcano has erupted. The rage has come. Malice, which means mean-spirited or vicious attitude that desires harm to others or to see them suffer. When someone wrongs you and you resent it and bitterness falls into your heart, that's malice. Uh, I confess sometimes I struggle with unsafe drivers. I can handle rude drivers, but when I see people blow through stop signs at 40 miles an hour that are jeopardizing lives, I begin talking as my wife and others. I very rarely talk aloud at drivers, but I do at unsafe drivers because I think that could be my wife jogging. That could be a family with a young baby. And I begin talking, and sometimes in my mind I think about 
It'd be so nice to have a badge that I could pull them over and here's the fines that I would levy. Or maybe if I had a paintball gun and I just gave them a couple of highly colorful dings to remind them and alert others, unsafe driver coming. And I have vicious thoughts in my mind, but that's not righteous. <laughs> but we can't even think ill of another. Slander, that we actually speak will of another, ill of another, that we defame them, that we maliciously malign them so that others think less of them. An abusive speech doesn't just mean harsh, hateful speech. It's a word that actually means obscene speech. And so it relates to profanity and cursing and the jokes we tell and the remarks we made that in the way that we view each other, think about each other and treat one another, all of that is to be different. All of the hateful is to be laid aside and the new is to come. When the prodigal son came back to the father and you remember his garments were soiled and spoiled and he'd been sleeping with the pigs and he came to his father and what did he do? They were laid aside for the new robe that awaited. And it's a beautiful picture of us. What did Jesus say to the paralytic that was healed and to the woman caught in adultery? Your sins are forgiven, and now what? Go and sin no more. That's not who you are. That's not who you are anymore. Don't live that way anymore. Finally, that we are to live honestly as new, renewed persons for Christ. Do not lie to one another. Paul makes an especial point of prohibiting deceit because relationships are built, built on trust and deceit destroys trust. Integrity is undermined by, by dishonesty. And so in his prohibitions and commands, he makes an especial point of not lying to one another, not defrauding one another, not deceiving one another, not manipulating one another. And then he gives the reason. Since you laid aside that old self with its evil practices and have put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Probably most of you all have seen the play, listened to the musical, or watched the movie uh, Les Miserables. And you remember how Jean Valjean, who is paroled from prison for stealing a loaf of bread, and he comes and he can't find a job because he's got a prison record against him, and he is taken in by a kindly bishop. And what, is the, what does Jean Valjean do? He steals the cups of silver and he steals away and he's caught. And the gendarmes bring him back to the bishop and one word from them and he'd be back with the lash upon his back. And what does the bishop do? I gave him these, but brother, you forgot these also. Would you leave the best behind? And then when they're standing alone, the bishop says, I have bought your soul from God. And then enters into one of the most famous songs of that musical that is known as Jean Valjean's Soliloquy. And he's wrestling with himself of who he was and all the wrong and all the justification he had for the hate that he felt and the wrong that he did. But then this man had touched him and he had experienced love and grace and mercy. And then it concludes with, I'm reaching but I fall and the night is closing in. And I stare into the void to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. And there was this turning point. There was this pivot point. There was this hinge in his history, in his life. That's who I was. I've experienced the mercy and the love of God. And I'm not going to live that way any longer. I'm a new person now. And I'm going to live accordingly. Because we are being renewed to a true knowledge. 
that God doesn't just save us and justify us. We're not just forgiven. We're being remade as we grow in the knowledge of God and Christ. And we are being remade to the full knowledge of God and Christ, just like we sang. That one day, even though now we know partially, then we will know fully as we are fully known. According to the image of the one who created him. That God puts his Holy Spirit within us to make us holy like his son. The God who is love puts his loving spirit within us to make us more loving like his son. And that we are progressively becoming more and more like Jesus until the day that we see him. And then we will become like him because then we will see him. And when we see him as he is, then we will love him as we ought. And we will finally become purified and glorified to enjoy God fully forever and ever. That's who we are. And therefore we are to live accordingly. And in this renewal, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, between those who have been circumcised and those who are still uncircumcised, between the barbarians that were uncultured, uncivilized, and didn't speak Greek, like the Scythians, who were those who lived in the southern region of Russia, or even to being a slave and a freeman. All those other distinctions don't matter anymore in Christ. We are all sinners saved by grace through faith who are being conformed to the image of Christ to come to the full knowledge of Him and at the end of the day, the distinctions don't matter because Christ is all. Christ is all that matters. And what matters to Christ is that his disciples love one another as he loved them. That we live to make ourselves pleasing to God. That we abide in him, that he might abide in us, that we might bear abundant fruit for God. Because by this is God glorified that we bear abundant fruit for him. And moreover, Christ is in all. That Jesus Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit dwells in every one of his disciples. And the Christian that you may like the least, the one that you dread the most, the one that is the most irritating and frustrating one in your life, Christ is in them. And if you can't love them for their sake, then love them for Christ's sake. Because Christ loved them enough to die for them. This is how we are to live as new creations in Christ. Not who we were, but who we are. So... A couple of weeks ago, I guess maybe last weekend, we were invited to go to the annual banquet of Living Hope Ministries. And that's a ministry based out of Arlington that ministers to those who struggle with gender issues and to also support the families of those in those contexts. And the banquet started like most banquets do. You had the meal, you had the traditional chicken. What do they call it? Rubber chicken, but this was much better. Uh, but rather than the typical ministry presentation, there was a musical that they put on called Jesus is Enough. And the context was a coffee shop because after this ministry meets midweek, the people who attend the meeting often go to a coffee shop or a cafe and they talk and they encourage. And in this context, the various individuals were sharing their stories and then they would break out into an appropriate song. And the fourth person, after sharing a story of growing up in Louisiana in a Baptist family and then struggling with same-sex attraction and yielding to it and falling into sin and having suicidal thoughts and then God dragging him out of it, but then tempting him all the time to fall back into that. This individual stepped up to a microphone with devil's horns and a red cape and then this music began playing. You recognize it? It's Hamilton with King George stepping up. And here is King George's song, You'll Be Back. But listen to the lyrics as though sung by Satan. 
You say that the price of my love is a price you're not willing to pay. You cry in your tea, which you hurl in the sea. When you see me go by, why so sad? Remember we made an arrangement when you, were, when you went away. And now you're making me mad. Remember, despite your estrangement, I'm your man. You'll be back. Soon you'll see. You'll remember that you belong to me. You'll be back. Time will tell. You'll remember that I served you well. Oceans rise. Empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a legion of fiery demons to remind you of my love. da 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 and no, don't change the subject because you're my favorite subject, my sweet, submissive subject, my loyal, royal subject forever and ever and ever and ever. You'll be back like before. I will fight the fight and, I will fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise, and I'll love you till my dying days. And when you're gone, I'll go mad. So don't throw away this thing we had. Because when push comes to shove, I will kill your soul and body to remind you of my love. And here was Satan singing that. Because that's what Satan sings to us, doesn't he? We come to Christ and then the whispers come. Come back. Enjoy. Indulge. You can do this. You're justified in that. Don't you miss doing this? Don't you miss all of that? As the proverb says, like a dog returning to its vomit, so we return to our sin. And part of the story that this person told is that the way they counteract this is by reminding each other of their identity. That's not who you are anymore. That's not something you can entertain and indulge in anymore. You are a creation of God made in His image. You have been redeemed by Jesus. You are being conformed to the image of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are an adopted son and daughter of God. You are a prince or princess of heaven. And the way that they combat the old cravings and lust and itches and urges is by reminding each other that's who we were. That's not who we are. We can't live that way any longer. And so Dina Community Church, let us consider the members of our earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, to passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. For because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them we also once walked when we were living in them, but now we also must put them aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from our mouths. We mustn't lie to one another because we have put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And in this renewal, there is no, no distinction between Greek and Jew, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, educated and educated, male and female, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all that matters. And he is in every one of us. So let us live accordingly. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for the beautiful truth of the gospel. That when we sinned against you, you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son to become a man that he might be our representative. 
and live the perfect life that we could never live to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And that he might be our substitute to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that we committed. But in dying, he was risen. And when we are identified with him by grace through faith, we are identified with his death and resurrection. And therefore, we go down in the waters of the baptism to symbolize that we died to that old self and a new creation in Christ rises to walk in newness of life. Would you please remind us of these truths? Would we embrace these truths? And would we live according to our new, renewed identity in Christ and no longer continue to act as who we used to be, but who we are in light of who we will be? Grant us grace to this end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.